All right. I know I say this every single time, but it's true again. I'm really excited to be kicking off a new teaching series here at Roots. I think that this series has been welling up in me and welling up in the rest of the teaching team for a long time now, and I think now is the right time. Over the next eight weeks leading up to the season of Lent, we are going to explore several questions about central Christian beliefs and the process that many of us have either underwent or are currently undergoing to critically analyze those beliefs. A process that can be unnerving, can be treacherous, can even feel a little bit like a crisis. I'm talking about what a lot of people call deconstruction. And now that I've said that word, I feel that I have to say some important qualifications for it. Since for a significant amount of people, this word can feel a bit threatening. Like I said last week, deconstruction doesn't necessarily mean rejection. Deconstruction can be a precursor to rejuvenation. Like the example I gave last week of Good Bones. How many of you watch Good Bones? It's one of the few shows that my entire family can... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Toby. <laughs> it's an important recommendation. One of the few shows that my whole family can watch together. It's in that genre of fixer-upper type shows. And it follows the uh, mother-daughter team in, uh, in Indianapolis that call themselves Two Chicks and a Hammer. And in one single episode of Good Bones, you go from dilapidated eyesore to beautiful and inviting home. But in order to do that, you have to go through what they call Demo Day. You've got to strip down the entire structure to bare studs and expose all the wiring, all the plumbing, and the foundation. Only then can you knock out any unnecessary walls, the ones that aren't actually load-bearing, and fix what's broken. So that in the end, not only do you end up with a more attractive and livable space, but also a stronger and more robust structure. We not only need to rediscover or refine our faith, that we need to have our faith refined. Faith is a continual process of ever-deepening love. And deconstruction is just one element of that process. And that's why we're calling this series Refined, Discovering the Jesus Way After Deconstruction. Because what's happened to a lot of us is that we've been taught to never question our beliefs. We've been taught that to question is to doubt, and to doubt is to sin. But if you've been taught that, this morning I want to disabuse you of that notion right now. Doubt is not necessarily sin. Doubt can be a dogged form of fidelity, like it was for the Apostle Thomas. How many of you know the nickname for the Apostle Thomas? Doubting Thomas. I think this is a slur. I think that this is an unfair characterization of Thomas. But if I were Thomas, I would wear it as a badge of honor. Because in reality, Jesus didn't rebuke Thomas for wanting to see his resurrected body for himself. 
But Jesus provided Thomas with what he needed to have confident trust. And I believe God can provide us, each one of us, with what we need to have confident trust. But confident trust isn't the absence of questions or curiosity or desire to understand God more deeply or more fully. Confident trust is a posture from which we continue to engage our faith both critically and faithfully. This is in fact an important part of my faith journey. I came to faith through a powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit at a Pentecostal church. God met me in that place in a way that I felt like I, I couldn't deny it. And so I surrendered myself fully to God. I was transformed in undeniable ways. But even still, from the very beginning, I was filled with questions. So many questions. Constant questions. And I'm so grateful to my first pastor, whose name is Terry Austria, because he didn't squelch that curiosity. He didn't shame me for my analytical nature. In fact, I, I feel like he encouraged me to explore, to push, to prod, to investigate. St. Anselm has a famous motto, faith-seeking understanding. But by this, he wasn't saying that once we get understanding, we no longer need faith. That's not what he was saying. That would mean that faith and understanding are mutually exclusive. What he was talking about was faith as an active kind of love for God. Someone with an active love for God seeks to deepen one's knowledge of the subject whom they love. And this is really easy to understand if you think about this in terms of human relationships. In human relationships, if we love someone, it, that love drives us to want to get to know them better. And then as we get to know them better, that deeper knowledge makes us love them even more. So faith-seeking understanding isn't about getting to a place where we never question God anymore. It's about a never-ending journey of love, deeper and deeper into the boundless sea of God's nature and God's purposes in the world. The problem really comes in, and you know this as well as I do, the problem really comes in when that faith, that active kind of love for God faith, is replaced by a system of beliefs about God. Human beings have brains that are built to conserve energy. Did you know that? Dr. Christina Cleveland calls this the cognitive miser. It's a more efficient use of our brain power if we put our faith into neat little boxes and put them on the shelf and never open them again. I think of this as the proverbial doctrinal checklist. Yep, I believe that, 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 and that, I'm good. I was once part of a denomination that had a doctrinal checklist. They called it the 16 Fundamental Truths. And I questioned just about all of them. Based on what I was learning about God, from the scriptures, and from my experience of God. And that's when the shaming and the exclusion began. Have you ever experienced that? Some traditions are really good about guarding their boundaries. Like junkyard dogs. You're either in or you're out. If you question, you are on the outside looking in. You're either with us or you're against us. 
And this is when you can tell that the system of beliefs has become the object that faith is being placed in, not the God to whom the system is supposed to point us. I can honestly tell you, I honestly can't tell you how many of my conversations have gone like this. TC, I was taught to think about God this certain way, and I believed it for a really long time. But then I started to have questions. And instead of helping me understand God better, my community turned on me. And now it's not so much about the belief. Now it's about how hurt and betrayed I feel. I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation. Dozens. And that's one of the number one reasons why I'm really passionate about this series. Because when churches that profess to be communities of grace, communities that follow Jesus, forbid people from questioning or exploring or expressing doubt or shaming and excluding people, we rob people of faith. We are unnecessarily creating crises of faith. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've had this conversation or I've heard this story. TC, I was taught X about the Christian faith, but then I went to college and I learned Y. Now I don't consider myself a Christian anymore and I don't attend church. Maybe you've heard stories like that. Maybe you have a story like that. Sometimes universities and colleges are portrayed as big scary places that destroy people's faith. I was told they'll edumacate the Jesus right out ya. <laughs> or I was told seminaries are cemeteries for your faith. So many people have had their faith shipwrecked because they weren't prepared for the storms. So many people have been set up to fail because the faith they were taught was a house of cards. So many people have unnecessarily suffered because they, were taught, they weren't taught to think critically and they weren't allowed to process their questions. But the truth is, and I, I believe this, I believe that truth has nothing to fear. If what we believe is grounded in what's real and what's right and what's true and what's good, then we should be able to subject it to scrutiny. Amen? I think so. And that's what this series is going to be all about. Jesus told two parables back to back that I think are, are, are good for framing this series. These two parables come from Matthew 13, and they're about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is so beautiful, so wonderful, so compelling, that you'll put everything else aside in order to get it. The kingdom of heaven is so beautiful, so wonderful, so compelling that you'll rethink everything you thought you understood in order to grasp it. Or here's how the Apostle Paul put it. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of the resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. In order for people to undergo deconstruction and not have their faith shipwrecked, we need healthy communities. We need others who are as committed to us as we are to them, and together we provide each other non-judgmental friendship. The patron saint of deconstruction is our sister and our friend, Rachel Held Evans. As many of you know, last year she went to be with the Lord at 37 years old. But in her short life, she had a powerful impact on so many people, myself included. She made her journey of faith-seeking understanding very public. And she invited others to journey with her. And many people who were not allowed to ask questions lived vicariously through her story until they were able to get free themselves. A couple days ago, maybe a week ago, the New York Times podcast, The Daily, did an episode on her talking about how she challenged evangelicals. And I, as I listened to it, I, I just was um, overwhelmed with emotion. She, she did so much to invite people on this journey of faith with her. It's like she said, it's like she said, I love God so much, I'm going to go find him. No matter where it takes me, who's coming with me? And a lot of people went with her. The podcast episode closed with an audio clip of Rachel speaking, and I, I just... I just started weeping. Here's what she said. She said, I keep thinking about the women who showed up at the tomb on Easter morning. On the days when I believe this story, I'm struck by the fact that they showed up with burial spices. They showed up ready to walk through the rituals of grief and say goodbye to their friend. That was women's work in those days, tending to those vulnerable things. But it's only intending to the vulnerable things that we can expect to witness a miracle. I can't promise you resurrection, but I can promise you companionship. I can promise you friends for the journey. I can promise you fellow travelers to help you carry those burial spices. And as we tend to the vulnerable things together, may the God of every season, the God of survival, and if not survival, then death and resurrection, bless, preserve, and keep you now and forever. Amen. That's what Roots is really meant to be. We're a community of misfits. We don't have all the answers. We don't even have our acts together. Our ducks will not stay in a row. <laughs> but we're committed to being family for one another, just as we have been made part of God's family. And in the end, what I think we find is that it's not the Christian religion that we want to end up with. It's the Jesus way. Jesus' earliest disciples didn't consider themselves Christians. They, they considered themselves followers of the way. And so as we embark on this journey into understanding deconstruction, we are understanding the Jesus way. 
One of the primary reasons that we are set up to fail oftentimes is because when we consider the objections, when we consider the objections, we end up with a crisis of faith. Because the systems of doctrines is what we've been placing our trust in, not the practices of Jesus and the way of Jesus. So in this series, we're going to continually be drawing the focus back again and again away from intellectual affirming a set of doctrines to putting our faith into practice, following the way of Jesus. Because as I've taught here many, many times before, I believe that we are formed by the practices in which we participate more than the beliefs we supposedly affirm. 